And welcome back to Full Dusty Jacket, a literary podcast for gentlemen. My name is Sam, and I am joined by my longtime friend, college roommate, and even though he does not like this description, the most prolific reader of fine novels of anyone I've ever met. Sean, how are you today? Doing great, Sam. Can't complain. Hello, everybody out there listening to us. So we are continuing on with this sort of new thing we're doing, um, which is one book based off a movie. And then another book that is not. Um, this, as we told you guys in the last episode, this was not initially our plan. Um, however, as a result of me being primarily a movie guy, and I could never think of books uh, to pick that weren't turned into movies in some way, it just it just felt natural. And not only that, um, it's a good tie into our name. And you know, what? it's a gimmick, and we're gonna stick with it. I like this gimmick. So we did uh, we did a book that was turned into I think multiple movies last time. We're gonna do it one more time, and then after this, we're going to do one of Sean's novels, which will not have been turned into a movie. Sounds easy enough out there for everybody to get. Yeah. Uh, so, anyways. Let's tell you what we're doing. Uh, today's novel is is my pick, and it's actually The Prestige, written by Christopher Priest. So a little bit of background on this. Um, I saw the movie first, directed by Christopher Nolan. It's a movie that I liked when I first saw it, and then every uh, time I saw it after, I liked it less and less to the point now that I don't like it at all. And I don't know why I decided to read the book, but I did. And this is a book I absolutely love. And not only that, um, this book, I think, is one of the most different novels to its movie adaptations that I've ever read. I mean, what Christopher Nolan does with it, he takes key elements of it, but it's a completely different story. And I'm going to tell you guys now, we're going to have spoilers galore, all right? So if you don't, if you think you know the ending of this book because you've seen the movie, you don't. Now, if you haven't read the book or seen the movie and you don't want to know the, know the spoilers, well, turn this off, watch the movie, read the book, come back, and then you can hear us talk about it, uh, you know, n- knowing everything that happens. But we cannot talk about this book or the movie without talking about the endings, and specifically because each one of these has a different surprise ending. Um, Sean, did you find this a worthwhile read after you had seen the movie, because I assume that you saw the movie before you read the book. Yeah, my history with this book is I saw the movie first, and it was actually when uh, you and I were still roommates. Somebody had a copy of the book. It was mine. Was I it bet yours? you it was mine. Did yeah. it have those? Did it have those two weird guys on it? They almost look kind of like puppeteers or puppets. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. So I read the book back then, and. It was weird coming back to read the book because I had almost completely forgotten about how different the book actually is from the movie. Like the main difference uh, between this book and the movie is that the book actually has a framing narrative that goes around the main uh, plot of the book, which we'll talk about. But first, Sam, I have a question for you. 
Yeah, please. Do you like magic, like stage magic? You know what? Uh, teenager Sam, early 20s Sam, who maybe was a bit more concerned about being cool, would say no. But late adult life Sam? Yeah, he does. And not only that, um, I might as well bring this up now. I think The Prestige is a great, great book and a mediocre film. But there is another film that came out the same time as The Prestige, which I totally avoided because it just looks stupid. And I was like, oh, I want to see the Christopher Nolan one. He made Memento called The Illusionist starring Edward Norton. And that movie's actually great. And I highly, re- it, it kind of got buried by The Prestige, but it's much, much better. So long answer to a short question. Yes, I do like magic. Yeah, I, I knew at some point we had to talk. Well, we'll at least bring up that I do also believe The Illusionist is a superior film. But uh, yeah, me, I like, I'm starting to get back into like stage magic. And one of the neat things I think the film does is they bring in one of my uh, favorite magicians, Ricky Jay in a cameo at oh, the yeah. beginning of the movie. And if out there listening, and you I also recommended to, Ricky Jay and his 52 assistants is my favorite single like taped magic show I've ever seen in my life. It's on YouTube. I've seen it. It's fantastic. It's so good. It's actually directed by David Mamet. Yeah. Let me throw another one out there for you, Sean. There is another one that was on Hulu recently, and I can't remember the name of it. Oh, God. I got I to gotta Google this right now. But basically, it's a magic show, but it's one of the most different magic shows you will ever see. Uh, oh, it's called In and of Itself. That's what it's called. Derek Delgadio's In and of Itself highly recommend this magic special it is it is quite frankly on par with ricky jay's in terms of its meta contextual tone in terms of it is a magic show about magic shows cannot recommend it more highly so yeah the older i get the less i care about being cool and i'm all for a good magic show awesome well before we turn into a a magic podcast uh let's dive in (laughs) Uh, i guess we should start with the original source the book um Yeah, I mean, sure. I'll give it a quick description, all right? There are two magicians in the latter part of the 19th century, so I think this takes place basically in like the 1880s or so, maybe even a little bit later than that, Um, and a conflict happens between these two aspiring magicians that turns them into rivals. It is not the conflict from the film. Nobody's wife dies in a drowning tank of water. It's like much more simple, but what we have to basically talk about is the structure of this book. It starts off with this guy. He's in the 20th century. He's like a he's a journalist, and he is taking the train out to a uh, to like a mansion to interview this woman, who basically may or may not know a relative of his that he doesn't even know he has. See, this guy has a feeling, like literally an internal feeling, that he's a twin, yet he was not raised a twin, yet he is kind of certain that he has one. He's like, I imagine there are twins out there who were separated at birth who have this feeling. So he's on assignment for this story to go to this this lady's house in, who lives alone sort of in this mansion to interview her about this story, but he's also really curious because he believes that they have a personal connection and she might be able to shed some light on the fact that he thinks he has a twin side note his he is actually a descendant of one of the magicians in this book named alfred borden um and and the woman is a descendant of alfred borden's nemesis uh what was the guy's name sean the hugh jackman character uh rupert angier rupert angier now we have to go back in time 
After this, it is told through journal entries. Uh, the first half of the book is the journal entries of Alfred Borden. Now, this is where it gets really cool, and we'll talk about which half of the book did you like better, Borden's or Angier's. The Borden half of the book, his his journal entries are written like this. I was walking the street the other day, and I said to myself, you know, it would be really great if I rented that venue over there for my magic show. However, I disagreed with myself vehemently and said that that was not the right place to rent a venue. However, I was very firm that I thought this was the right place despite my disagreement with myself. Right. Yeah. So it, it's very disorienting. Sean, should, we, should we give the spoilers now for the for the Borden portion? Of the no, book? I, I think we can. A lot of people. I think we could keep going. I think we should keep going in this vein. Yeah, I just okay. I just like the way Borden's write his journal is very interestingly written because it's almost schizophrenic in the way that the yeah. neck like he'll stop a paragraph and then the next paragraph would be like, "How dare you just reference a? I thought we decided that we weren't going to talk about a." And then the next paragraph no, is there's like, no I'm we. So sorry. See, you're giving it oh, away yeah. already. There's there's no we. That's the point. All right, spoiler. So it would have been in, in – in, no, it's okay. In, it would have been in the next journal entry. It would have been like, how dare I give this away? I told myself not to write this part down. So everything is done in the singular. I think let's give away – I think we have to give away the spoiler, but we can give it some context first, okay? Um, the first thing I want to ask you before I even give away the spoiler is, Sean – you watched the movie like me before we read the book. How do you feel about someone reading the book who hasn't seen the movie reading this segment? Do you think they would have been utterly confused? I mean, what do you think would have been going through that person's mind reading this who didn't already know? You're definitely going to be like, something's up. You're, there, there's no way you can read through that section without doing like a double take. Did I just read that sentence right? Um, why is it written like this? Uh and then when you start figuring out and putting the pieces together in the f- subsequent sections, then you kind of want to go back and reread it and be like, oh, it all snaps together. But it's written so well that at first it's very confusing, but it makes total sense by the end of the novel. Do you think it would have been too confusing for enjoyment for someone who didn't already know the end? Because you and I both went into it knowing exactly what was going on in these journal entries. Do you think that for somebody else it would have been too confusing? No, because I think it serves as a as a interesting hook. You would it's a puzzle for you to solve. You're reading a book, and you obviously to read the back cover. You know it should be about magicians. So obviously magicians have secrets. Therefore, this guy is hiding something. And as I said, when you get towards the end of the novel, it's just becomes fascinating and it might spark the reader to reread it. I don't think it's a necessary like a, like a turnoff. It might discourage some readers because some people want the story to be very simple and straightforward. But I think anybody that is willing to give the book a chance will have no problem getting through it. I think someone reading this book before this movie even comes out already has a predetermined interest in the material and is going through it, like is not turning it off. I don't think anyone casually picks up this book. Um, You know what? I'm not going to give away the ending. I'm not going to give away the ending until I give away the second ending in the second half of the book. So I'm going to continue, okay? So basically, Alfred Borden has a trick. Uh, 
Before I even get to the trick, what I will say is Alfred Borden is a dedicated magician. He is a guy who basically sees magic not simply as a profession, but a lifestyle and sort of a calling, right? So he has very highfalutin ideals about what magic should be used for and should not be used for. And this is where the conflict between him and Angiers comes into play. He hears about this guy who's clearly a magician who's pretending to be a medium, who's charging people to talk to their dead relatives. And Borden, like very much on his high horse, thinks this is just absolutely ghastly and a, and a shame, a slap in the face of the whole, not even the profession, but the art of magicians and, and magic. So he goes to this guy's, uh, what do you call a medium seance. when they're doing a session? A seance. He goes to a seance. And he basically ruins it. He tries to expose the guy for a fraud. Of course, the guy, Angier, does not take to this kindly. And this rivalry develops between the two where even if you've seen the movie, you'll know they start trying to sabotage each other's shows. So Angier comes up with, not Angier, excuse me. So Borden comes up with this trick, sort of the trick he's been waiting to do his whole life, which is called the transported man, which is very simple. He throws a ball across the stage. He walks through a door, right? And then he seemingly comes out of another door on the other end of the stage in in an instant, like in less than a heartbeat, which is impossible. I mean, you would literally have to teleport yourself. There'd be no other physical way to do this. So Angier sees this trick and he can't figure it out. He's like, this is just absurd. He's like, I, he's like, I don't care what kind of magician that you are. He's like, nobody can transport their body that quickly yeah it's just not possible yeah. it's not physically possible i think so we should now he i think decides... we should pump the brakes real quick because please I yeah. think it's very important to establish what type of men borden and angier are including like their backgrounds so alfred borden was born in a working class family as a like a carpenter his father was a carpenter and he actually showed early proficiency that his dad thought that he could make a living not just you know turning barrel wheels like the spokes but he could make fancy cabinets and you know highly skilled carpentry but he becomes enamored with magic but borden also realizes that when he goes to magic shows he can figure out how the magician on stage is doing the trick he has this intuitive mind that can see what's on stage and see through the illusion Meanwhile, Angier is actually comes from money. He's second in line to inherit this giant estate. He'll actually become a lord uh, as long as his older brother dies before him. And he, as kind of a hobby, picks up magic. And when he realizes that he's going to run out of his inheritance and he hasn't decided on going to college or anything, he starts pursuing magic. But Angier is the opposite of Borden. He has no idea how the magicians on stage are doing their, their illusions. What he does is he throws money around. He starts buying people's tricks. And he also does the seances with his wife as the assistant because they're easy to do and people in mourning were easy to exploit. And so it very much grounds... You say it's a rivalry, but I don't think it's that. I believe it's just, it's not a rivalry because Borden is the better magician by far than Angier. Do you, I mean, why do you use the term rivalry in this book? I guess, I guess we have to have a conflict, but it's such a strong word. Yeah, I mean, 
Yeah, well, to be fair, though, so so two things. One, I think that um, Angier, it's more than a hobby for him. I do believe magic is a passion. He's just not an intuitive magician. That's all. He just, he even says it. He says he lacks, like, the natural skill of the magician, but he's a hard worker, and it is a passion for him. In fact, so much so that I think in some ways... Uh, the money and the trust he's supposed to have from his family wealth, they, they basically, he's kind of outcasted for his, from his family for pursuing magic. So he's not a total douchebag, because I think if we were to frame it the way you just framed it, it would assume he was this incredibly unsympathetic character, which he's not. He is somewhat of a sympathetic character. And not only that, he does not pick the fight with Borden. Borden picks it with him, and in fact, there are tragic consequences to what Borden does. Uh, you mentioned his wife, was an assistant of Angier's during the seances. Well, she was also pregnant, and basically the trauma of what Borden did at the seance causes her to miscarriage, and that's sort of the foundation. Now, the reason I call it a rivalry is that while Borden is the better magician, Angier's also successful. It can't be a rivalry if one of them is successful and the other is not, but the problem is they both rise in stature through the professional ranks of magicians, Mm -hmm. and as a result, it can be a rivalry, specifically because they start sabotaging each other's shows, right? They become professional adversaries. So yeah. So even though one is the more naturally intuitive magician, it's definitely a rivalry. Yeah, um, but I don't believe it's a rivalry because it's not like the Celtics versus the Heat in the 80s where each team had to do better. They, I think you mean the Knicks versus the Heat, but yes. Uh, yeah, either, either team. I think the Celtics. Never mind. I'm not a basketball guy. Uh, but I love that. I love that. I love that rivalry. But uh, Angier, the way that Borden finds out about Angier is because Angier, under a pseudonym, is writing in the magician's like trade magazine anonymously and putting down the magicians that wouldn't sell him his secrets. Angier is only in it for the money and the fame. Meanwhile, Borden does it because of the craft because he respects magic as this sacred thing. Whereas Angier is all just, I want the money, I want people to applaud me, and I don't care how it happens, but I want it, I, I want it now. And that's why I think it's not a rivalry, because both those men have completely different goals for their career. They do mess but with then each why do other. They keep, why do they keep fucking with each other? I think because, A... You mentioned the incident, okay, at the seance when Borden exposes Angier, efficiently giving him a, like a black eye for performing further seances. While being thrown out, he also shoves Angier's wife to the ground, right. not knowing it would cause her to have a miscarriage. Borden writes to Angier like a couple days later, apologizing for his impulsiveness, and Angier does not reply. And he thinks he's done with this. But then Angier starts showing up at Borden's shows and like revealing his secrets. And that kind of starts the animosity between the two. But I think we're well enough caught up that we can continue on with the plot. Because so now we've got Angier and Borden, established magicians. Um, and they're starting. And we've got this trick. And we've got, and we've this, got this main trick. trick. Yeah, so so Angier can't figure out this trick. And here's where a basic Victorian uh, 
magic story turns into fucking science fiction. I mean, this is the coolest part about this book, that it turns into science fiction. So I don't remember how uh, Angier decides to go see David Bowie, a.k.a. Uh, um, Nikolai Tesla, in the book. Do you remember how he decides to go pursue Nikola Tesla? Okay, so it's handled a little differently in the movie, but Angier yeah. hires on an assistant... And it becomes his mistress. Oh, by the way, another big key difference between the, the book and the movie is at this point in their careers, both men are happily married with children. They're established enough that yeah. they, can, they can pay for it. Uh, however, Angier, he starts sleeping with his assistant. And in order to try to figure out Borden's secret, he sends her over to Borden's like workshop in order to seduce him not knowing that she is eventually going to fall in love with Borden. And so, so far this is the same then as the movie. We're still on par with the movie then in regards to this part. Yes. Um, and kind of as a farewell, instead of what Andrew wants is he wants her to take his whole notebook or something, his uh, private notebook. But instead Borden is smart enough that he gives her a letter to give to Angier, dis- like disguised as a secret, that has Nikolai Tesla's name on it. Okay, so this is exactly the same as the movie then. I just couldn't remember in the book if it was the exact same ruse. So basically, Borden, the secret, it says Tesla, right? And Angier just assumes that Nikolai Tesla is the person responsible for this transporting man trick. So Angier goes to America to seek out Tesla, who's living in Colorado at the time, and to pay him a shit ton of money to essentially transport his body across rooms. Um, and this part I'm about to tell you, I don't. It's, it's not a spoiler. So here's something. The biggest difference, I think, between the book and the movie is the surprise. There are two surprise endings of the movie and the book. One of the surprise endings for both is consistent, is the same. The other and the far more interesting sort of great surprise ending is not the same. So the part of the book that's, that's, that is the surprise ending of the movie, they reveal right away, which is that basically Nikola Tesla's machine, it doesn't transport uh, Angier. What it does is it creates a duplicate of him somewhere else, like literally like across the room. Do I have that right, by the way? Is the is the transported version of him the duplicate? Um. Kind of. See, in the book, it's handled that you can program the machine to, you know, teleport you to, like, a certain distance. Like, you can almost pinpoint exactly where you want to teleport yourself. And mm-hmm. in the book, it's you get teleported to that spot. However, your corpse is left in the machine. And Angier nicknames it the Prestige. But... And it's lifeless. It literally immediately dies. Yes. And you come out on the other side, essentially intact. At first, it hurts like heck. Like, Angier describes that it's the it's like being ripped apart by tiny little gremlins disassembling you and then slamming it all back together. So much so right. that he actually has to work on it for like two months before he can be teleported without immediately dropping to his knees in agony. Um, in the right. movie, when you get teleported, it creates two sentient you get beings. two sentient yeah, it, it, beings. Right, yeah. 
Which is interesting. I'll admit, it's interesting in its own right. Uh, it's just that the movie so completely mishandled it that by the time the movie gave away the surprise ending, you already knew it five minutes earlier. Uh, and that's just due to Christopher Nolan's uh, need to over-explain everything. Yeah. You know what I mean? We'll, we'll touch more on that. But keep going with the plot. So now Angier's got okay. his new teleported man or something along those lines. And uh, yeah, Borden... it's working like gangbusters. And Borden wants to know what's up. How's he doing this now? He, yeah, I actually don't... Re- I don't remember that from there on out, quite honestly. I just, like, for me, what I remember, basically, is that... So they're they're trying to fuck... You know, Borden's trying to figure out what's going on. He goes to one of Angier's shows. Actually, you know now I do remember. He goes to one... And, and here's something interesting, Sean. Whose perspective should I tell this from? Borden's. Borden's. It's revealed, it's should, revealed right, I'll tell first from Borden's through then. Borden's perspective. All right, so we'll tell from Borden's perspective then. So we're, we're, we'll say we're still in the Borden portion of the book, the Borden Diaries, even though technically we're not. We're bouncing around. So Borden goes to the show trying to figure out how is Angier pulling this off. And he basically goes and he sees sort of this contraption, and he sees it like buzzing and humming, and he thinks something's terribly wrong. And he shuts it off, right? Isn't that what he does? He like he basically shuts yeah, it off he thinks while it's, a, it's like mid He thinks it's a fire hazard. So he's just being a good yeah. citizen. Right. He, he just shuts it off mid trick. So and basically the whole thing goes awry, the whole the whole fucking trick is messed up. And then what he hears is that after this show that Angier has died, and he's certain that he did it. He's certain that he accidentally killed Angier. And then one day, Borden is in his dressing room, and he's actually attacked by a ghost, by literally the ghost of Angier. Um, and it kind of, it shakes Borden up so badly that he basically, like, becomes a shell of him, uh, of his former self. Well, he, like has a really, a, like, he has a heart attack. Oh, is that what happens? He yeah. has a heart attack? That's right. He does have a heart attack. Uh, but he survives it? Okay, so here's the spoilers out there, everybody. One of the, wait, wait, are we going to spoil it now? Yeah, we have to. Now we have to spoil it. Let's spoil it from Angier's perspective. How about that? Uh, because because Angier is the one who spoils it. Okay, all right. So he has a heart attack. That's all we'll say. He has a heart attack and he survives it. That's what we're going to say for now. And then, and then he quits doing magic. He quits doing magic as a result of the heart attack. Um now we're going to shift back over to Angier's perspective from the night the trick goes wrong, okay? is that Does that sound good to you? Yeah, we can do that. Okay. There's a lot of plot for one, but that's okay because it's so interesting to talk about. Um, so basically, uh, Borden shuts off the machine, and what happens to Angier is he actually is split into two sentient beings. Um, one of these sentient beings is basically a ghost with a brain, right? Like a really like he feels great, but he's a fucking ghost. Yeah. He like he can like walk through shit. He's like he's well, is, yeah. If is he ethereal focuses. the word? Is he ethereal? He's ethereal. I looked at him as more like the invisible man. But if he really focuses, yeah. he can pass through matter. But he also has trouble like holding things. But he can wear like a shirt, right. <laughs> stuff like it's very very uh, yeah. iffy. Right. And the other version of himself is basically an old man. Is like a man who's dying. Like a man yeah. who's just like on a like he's a like just like these two these two halves need to be whole okay so the ghastly the 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 ethereal version of Angier is like you know he's sworn on vengeance he like disappears into the netherworld of the London streets while his um his 
corporeal form? Is that correct? Did I use that word? Yeah, you're, you're getting it slightly off, and I think it's important. Uh, so he gets split, and his body yeah. half, his solid physical body, starts developing a disease, and it's he's on his deathbed. And so the corporeal yeah. half is helping to write the journal for uh, the dying Angier. And at this point... You mean no? Sorry, you mean you mean the ethereal half is writing it, or the, the corporeal ethereal half, half is writing it? Like the corporeal part, okay. like they're they're working on it together. But one's yeah. too sick to to write with the pen; the other one has to like strain every ounce of his being to move the pen. Yeah. But at this point, they get sold Borden's secrets. Yeah, and so that's how Angiers eventually uh, gets the secrets because with Borden, be- and now we can spoil it. Yeah, now we can spoil it with Borden being dead. His uh like accountant slash lawyer? no no so Angier sees in huh, let, let's be specific Angier sees Borden die he's like Borden must have died no he because doesn't I attacked he, him and he doesn't see oh him he doesn't die. At, it's this book is so weird in, to describe it in chronological order because right. there's like such time sensitive twists that go along in the plot. Oh, no, you know what? It's the mistress knows he's dead. That's what it is. Yeah. No, 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 excuse me. I know what it is now, right? He didn't have a heart attack while the ghost attacked him. He had one later in the home of his mistress. His mistress sees him die, and then he's still walking around later on. And now we can admit the secret. How about now? Yeah, there's uh, there's two Bordens. His yeah. entire they're, life, he's identical twins. And yeah. One is Alfred... No, say one is Alfred and one is Albert, and as a res- is that what it is? No, one is Frederick and one is Albert, and they become Alfred. Yes, and uh, they right. they keep this secret their entire uh, lives. Um, they both like the one would live in the house with his wife, and then the other one would live in like a dumpy apartment on the other side of town, and it actually works out conveniently for the two of them when uh, Angier sends his assistant over to seduce him because they're like, oh, okay, she fell in love with you. Great, now we're both happy. And like the best part about the book is that both Alfred or Albert and Frederick are super happy with their lives. Like they look at each other as this one giant extended family. There's no... They look at themselves as one life. Yeah. They look at themselves as one life. Yeah, and the movie really botches that. Um, in the, yeah, can we talk yeah, about the they're, movie Because they're miserable. About... In the movie, they're, in the movie, they're miserable. It's the complete opposite. Yeah, be- they, they, they have a terrible time sharing one life. Because they do the stupidest thing. This is like, it completely baffled me when I watched the movie. They're constantly switching roles. Like, one isn't right. just yeah, married. Yeah, that's, that's the, that's the fatal flaw of the movie. The, the most fatal flaw is why... Do they switch all the time? Yeah. Like, literally, why doesn't the one who's not in love and married just stay out on his own? Why do they feel the need to switch? It never makes it never made sense. And in this no. one, it does. Yeah. So, so one thing, basically, is I have a question for you um, so we can get away from plot a little bit, which is, do the Bordens decide to take on one life in preparation for a trick, uh, like, decades in advance? Or do they do it because they just think that somehow this is the trick? 
that there's such internal ma- magicians that it like it doesn't matter that nobody knows that they're brothers by getting one over on the world they are the ultimate magician i mean are they doing it for the sake of the trick itself which is to share a life to not let anyone know they're twins or are they doing it in preparation for the transported man which will be over a decade later here's my take on it i don't think it's concrete in either version of the story my theory is is that Albert and Frederick were leading, you know, lives as identical twins, but they weren't keeping it a secret that they're living as one. It's when they see another magician, a Chinese man, pull off this trick where the Chinese man would pretend that he was old and frail. And the big finale for his show was that he would produce this giant glass fishbowl full of water that would be heavy for a normal out of nowhere, out of nowhere. and yeah. he keeps they they keep seeing the show over and over again until they get finally get to interview the the, the magician and he reveals the secret that the guy despite being advanced in age is actually strong as an ox he just always has to appear frail and so i believe that gives them the idea that hey if we Hide that we're twins, we can come up with a trick that capitalizes on that. So they they do this then in um they do this in service to the transported man and that's it. Yeah, they realize that they can make a career off of the transported man, and then they have to go back and hide the fact that there's two of them. So I think they might be in See, like in, their in early the movie 20s. they take this. In the in the movie, they take this philosophical approach where what I call a good Christian Bale, because there's one bad brother and one good brother in the movie. But good Christian good Christian Bale tells Hugh Jackman literally about the guy who's faking being a frail old man. He's like he's like that's the trick, and that's how you escape all of this. Like somehow by by their concealment, they're somehow living a more elevated life. Yeah, because they're they're more dedicated and focused. Like I said. Borden is the more dedicated to the craft. Like, he's willing... They were both willing to sacrifice having their own identities that they have to merge and become one. And that was a sacrifice that Angier could never understand. Right. And in fact, it's actually revealed to Angier at one point that they're twins by a journalist, and he just can't believe it. Yeah, he's like, that's too easy. he, He couldn't fathom... He couldn't fathom the sacrifice. Exactly, and that's what makes that's why I don't like Angier at all. He's he's just he's <laughs> as dumb as the rubes in the audience. He he even says he is though. Exactly, but he's still and it, and what happens when he gets like the fancy new machine is that he constantly has to put himself through this agonizing pain, but he also on the other side realizes he can make himself wealthy right. by teleporting a small amount of money on his person every time. Yeah. Which is, by the way, what I would do. Exactly. I mean, who wouldn't, like, if you figure it out? Yeah. And to, to his, uh, I'll give him some credit, he's only putting the money away for his family to live because he knows he's going to die after his trick right. goes wrong. So I can respect that. By the way, yeah. So one of the Bordens, um, when he dies... The other Borden pays off, I think, the morgue basically to pretend like that never happened. It's just well, like no, it was like body. yeah. Well, no, it's like that was that was you know either Al- Albert or Frederick. Like 
Borden's actually dead. And then Borden, the remaining Borden, changes his name and lives the rest of his life. Kind of like in Witness Protection. And, there's, and, he, and, he, retires, and he retires from magic mm-hmm. because he can't do the transported man anymore. But technically, the secret is never revealed. Yeah. Good. I'm glad we got that out of the way because now we can go to the part of the book that I love that goes completely off the rails in a good way, which is totally different from the movie, which is basically... Um, the Angier two-body situation. And I may get this wrong, but basically, um, do they combine their bodies somehow? Or does the or does the dying Angier just die, which allows the ethereal Angier to take on a more substantive form? Uh, so, the yeah, the regular body dies, and then ghost, phantasm, Angier decides at the end of his journal segment that he is setting up the machine and he's the ghost is going to go in the machine, set the location to the dead body and try to teleport himself back into the dead body to see if it, it will either right. revive him or erase him from existence. Okay, so let's stop there and let's go to the present time, okay? So the the guy who's a descendant of Borden is talking to the woman who is a descendant of Angier, and basically what they discover is that a long time ago, this guy, the the Borden descendant, his father brought him to this home. Okay, when when the girl, when the woman was a young girl, and the father, the descendant of Borden, he's kind of a down on his luck, almost like grifter, like single father. He goes to this house for reasons that are totally unclear. He's welcomed into the house by this seemingly uh, wealthy family. And then because of this, like, you know, decades-long feud between these two families, the two fathers just, like, get in this enormous argument, and they end up heading to the room where this machine still exists. And the wealthy father, the one who is, like, the grandson of Angier, takes the young Borden boy and throws him into the machine, right? Yeah. Which kills the Borden boy's body, but then also teleports him to another place, which is why this adult version of him thinks he has a twin, because basically he feels like he's been split apart, which technically he has. And then shortly after this event occurs, he's actually put up for adoption by this guy, by this, like, grifter father of his. Well, no. And the woman who's telling him the story, she sees it all, doesn't she? Yeah, so the the granddaughter of the Angiers, her name is Kate. She's, like, five years old, and she hears the the dads arguing because Borden is there because... Borden never finds out Angier's secret, but he still wants to figure it out. And the dad, Papa Angier, is like, fine. He, they turn the machine on in the basement. Keep in mind, these are like grandchildren. These aren't these are the, the original, yeah, these, you know. Yeah. Yeah, these are the descendants. These are like two generations removed. Um, and I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I have a question. Yeah. Do you buy that this rivalry still exists? That No, because it's never a rivalry. I believe it turned into, a, I believe it turned into a, an obsession for both men. For both the wrong reasons. Because when... But I'm saying, why does the descendant go to the other descendant's house? Because... Why does that actually occur? Because original Alfred Borden was still not able to figure out Angier's secret. And I believe that the surviving Borden was told his kid to be like, you know what, he explained the whole story, and he's like, I hate Rupert Angier. 
find out his secret. And I believe that just trickled okay. down through the lineage. So this is a Borden family mission. Yes, exactly. Great way okay. to put it, Sam. Like it's their one modus operandi. We have to figure out this guy's secret. And then so, okay. yeah, so uh, Angier's descendant throws the young Borden into the machine. and But he also goes insane. Something to keep in mind is the Angier descendant, Kate's dad, he goes insane in this moment. Yeah. Like, he becomes an absolute lunatic. Yeah, he becomes, like, obsessive. Like, he, like, hoards everything. He becomes, like, a hateful lunatic. Yeah. Um, I mean, he's willing to kill, like, a five-year-old child, so he's already on the on the, the steep slope Well, he there. knows the five-year-old child won't be dead. Exactly. But here's the thing. He doesn't give Borden the clone back, like, the duplicate. He, get like, the prestige is left there, the dead body, and I believe that the Angier just pays off Borden and then gives off the um, Andrew is the board and the kid that died. Then he gives Andrew up for adoption because Kate does uh, not that's know. That's what you think happened? Well, Kate does not know that her father, you know, gave this kid up for adoption. The father kept it as a secret from the family. He paid the police mm-hmm. off. He paid the Bordens off. And Kate was living with this horror for her entire life that her father killed a child and then went deranged. And she wants answers, and that's why she invites uh, this Andrew guy over to the house. Because I think she has an inkling that he is the Borden's descendant. Well, they well they come the to clone, the conclusion yeah. together, I guess. They come to the conclusion together by working together that he is, in fact, the duplicate of himself in some sort of way, right? Mm-hmm. That, that the boy was either killed and duplicated or never killed at all. Because we don't know if it's basically transferring whatever scientific word exists for the soul, into the new body, right? We just don't know. Um, But here's, now we're at my favorite part of the book. I mean, now we're at the part of the book that is so light years ahead of the movie, and I just, in some ways, I can't believe that the movie decided not to do this ending. And this this is the surprise ending, folks, that you would just have never have guessed. So now it's nighttime. The uh, Andrew and Kate have basically, they feel that they have learned all there is to know except for one thing. That machine is still in the house. It is still like, it's basically locked away on the grounds of the, of the estate. It's not actually in the house, I believe. I believe it's a little bit, it's outside the house. It's like in almost a crypt. Like in a, uh, it's like in a crypt. It's, in a, it's basically in a crypt, right, where, like, where rich family members are buried. So Andrew decides he's going to go to this crypt and like take a look at this machine himself. It's like nighttime, it's snowing out, it's dark, it's basically a blizzard. He goes into this crypt, and what he... I mean, it's it's one of the most horrifying things I've ever read, actually. What he finds are just bodies and bodies of Angiers with, with, with dates on them, like little tags of like, of, of like the date, I guess, that they were like... Uh, clones so to speak like these are the prestiges like these are lots of prestiges and then he also finds the body of himself as a little boy like the one that kate's dad threw into the machine and he's horrified and he picks the body up and that's when he hears a voice it's like this ghastly voice and it's like you're a borden aren't you yeah he's like i knew you'd He's like, I knew you'd come back. And basically the surprise ending is that the original Angier has been keeping himself alive forever by uh by reduplicating himself. Yeah. <laughs> it's, Do I have that right? It's the perfect Victorian like era, like 
it's like science fiction horror twist. It comes out of nowhere. Yeah. It's so bonkers. It's just perfect that you get chased out of a crypt by this like reanimated deathless body. And here's what's crazy. It is. So basically, uh, Andrew's horrified, and he's like running out of the crypt with the body of his younger self. And by the time he like he like runs to Kate's door, he can see Angier walk out of the crypt. And Angier acts like he hasn't seen, even though it's darkness, like he hasn't been outside in years. Like, do we know what the fuck Angier is doing? I actually wondered if Angier was Kate's dad. That's a possibility I hadn't thought of. That might. That might be true. Like, what's he been doing? I mean, this is well over 100 years. What has he been doing? Yeah, it's like, it's not believable that he's just been hanging out in a crypt. It's hard to tell exactly whether or not that ghost Angier's idea to teleport himself back in the body actually made him 100% whole again. Because I believe when he's ghost Angier's, he doesn't have to, like, sleep or eat. Like, the bodily functions right. just cease on him. So so this is what I think. I think somehow he's he's basically still mostly ghost, mm-hmm. but he's figured out a way to keep himself alive using the machine, and he's been, he's been basically addicted to living anonymously in the sort of netherworld like the Invisible Man. Yeah, he's just a ghost floating around. And I believe that... I believe... I don't I don't entirely buy the theory that it was Kate's father that the ghost Angier's was. Yeah, neither do I. But he was waiting around. Like I think he knew ex- I think he taught his son and his grandson how the machine works, how like yes. the whole process works, and he's just been guiding the family and he has just been waiting for the Borden descendant to come claim the dead the dead prestige. <laughs> just that's that was By the him. way, Kate's Kate's dad goes insane and leaves the family shortly after this incident. Yeah. So, and yeah, Kate's on her own. Like, she's just living in, like, a secluded wing of the house. I'm just, well, she's, she's terrified of lots of portions of the house, including the crypt. I'm just so fascinated by what the fuck is Angier doing all this time. I mean, by this point, Angier must have seen his own son die. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Of old age. Yeah, but like, I, Angier is outliving them all. Yeah, it's kind of like that vampire conundrum or uh, being actually a ghost. Like, what do you do to to have a reason for being? Because he can no longer die. It didn't kill him yeah. when he teleported into the the, the dead prestige. So what else well, is there it, for it him didn't to kill do? Him when he when he transported, it didn't kill him when he transported into the sickly version of himself. But something happened. Yeah, I I believe it failed and he remained incorporeal. And I think that But then why so many more versions of himself? I mean well, there were even I think, more and, the, and and some of these were from later dates. I don't remember if that's 100% clear. I thought it was just all of the from each show that he performed. Like there would You think it was, I thought I thought some of them were from later dates. Um I I honestly don't remember. It doesn't really matter. No. The point is this guy has been alive the entire time. Um it's really interesting how basically it's so horrifying. It's such a scary scene, and yet Nolan thought that in his movie the scary thing would be the fact that somehow Hugh Jackman was killing off versions of himself, and he didn't know which one was the which one was the original version of himself. Like some some sort of existential horror is somehow scarier than gothic horror, which it's not. No, I think a 
And here's the other part that I found fascinating. The implication that if Andrew was hearing his one dead prestige occasionally, psychically, like telepathically, that means Rupert Angier has hundreds of people probably screaming in his head all the time. Like, why'd you do this to me? I got the sense he's insane. I got the the sense that by this point, he's insane. Absolutely. And that's so terrifying. Like, there's just this crazed dead magician that's wandering around modern-day England, you know, just with no rhyme or reason. He's got nothing to uh, nothing to do anymore. Yeah, so it's, it's really fascinating because this book, it's like two different halves. One half of the book is just this crazy series of journal entries. Uh, it's actually three parts, really. One half of the book is just this crazy series of journal entries by two people pretending to be one person. That into itself could be its own novel. Mm-hmm. The second half of the book are more journal entries, but in a much more chronological form, a much more standard type of novel. And then the third book is like literally another mystery unto itself with the with the descendants and all this. And then the way they all tie together, I mean, look, this is original. Oh, yeah. This guy, Christopher Priest... This is some original shit. Like, rarely do I say to myself, where the fuck did you get that idea? I know. But this is one of those times. I don't I don't see where he got this from. I mean, this is such a cool and original idea. Yeah, and apparently Christopher Priest, before he wrote this novel, he he wrote Victorian-era England novels, but nothing anywhere near this, like, science fiction horror thing. He must have just, you know, taken mushrooms or something and just was like, yeah. whoa, what if what if I did this? And it was just, I thought it was an it's such an excellent original work. It stands on its own. Like, so Sam Do you think this book gets enough praise? Yeah, it won it won like the best fantasy novel of that year. Okay. Uh like and it got adapted into a movie. I mean, I think it's the guy's sure, one hit, right. one hit wonder. Um, but I think as far as like a Victorian era science fiction horror novel it stands alone it's up there with frankenstein in my opinion like it's just so wildly original yeah There's... so what did you want to ask me well no i think it's time that we focus in on the adaptation uh the movie okay movie half and just quickly i guess well, list what you think it, the movie can, can you list for me what you think the movie did right first of all well, first, I first I'll list what I think it did wrong. Um, okay. <laughs> for yeah, for for starters, Hugh Jackman's a bad actor. He just is. He seems like a nice guy, definitely gay. Uh, but that's neither here nor there. I'm just saying, you know, he, look. One thing Hugh Jackman knows is pretending, and he knows pretending on a on a deeper level, like Borden knows pretending. Well, let's um, talk real quick. Yet, none, Go ahead. He, yeah. I, I think I, I was going to say, but yet, nonetheless, he's he's. <laughs> nonetheless, he's not good at pretending to pretend. He's he's not a good actor. The second problem with this movie, and it's the problem I have with all Christopher Nolan works, is just like Interstellar or anything else, by the time uh, that Hugh Jackman has been shot through the chest by Christian Bale, you already understand what is going on. So he gives this long speech basically telling the audience exactly what he was doing, just giving away the surprise ending. And then after that, they showed the tanks of the multiple Angiers. Let me give you a comparison. This would be like if Kevin Spacey said to Chaz Palminteri, I am Kaiser Soze, and then walked out of the police station, and then Chaz Palminteri was looking at his board behind his his desk and be like, oh my God, that guy was Kaiser Soze. <laughs> I mean, it's so fucking stupid. It is so... 
I don't know why Christopher Nolan thinks that we are all so dumb. Like, I do not get it. He does this in all his movies. It's the same thing with Interstellar. When uh, when fucking Matthew McConaughey is behind the bookshelf and he's literally saying, Murph, it's me. I was the ghost the whole time. <laughs> I was the guy behind the bookshelf. He's like, yeah, motherfucker, we understand you're fucking behind the bookshelf. We can see it. Just don't tell us. Like, I just, I do not understand what goes through this mi- this man's mind. Um, The second thing was he... He sensationalized it. You know, he did the whole Cain and Abel thing amongst the Bordens. um, And therefore, having one of the Bordens occasionally uh, spend time with the family, even though he didn't want to, makes no sense. Makes no sense. He literally could have lived a separate life. The only reason— He could have lived a separate life the whole time. The only reason that's in the book is, one, for a cool thing that Nolan doesn't even capitalize, is in the movie that's different, Angiers shoots off one of Borden's fingers. And so— Uh, the uh, the other Borden has to have his same fingers cut off by his brother. Right. But here's where he doesn't Another even thi- use it. Yeah. The entire movie, they they put on a black glove to hide it. But if you watch the movie very closely, Nolan never even shows uh, Christopher Bale's hands. So you could be like, yeah. oh, trying to figure out which brother is, is who in the scene. Nolan was trying right. to outsmart himself. And in doing so, outsmart he played himself he didn't even try like he was like this is too complicated i can't figure this out therefore i'm going to introduce that smart i'm going to introduce this hand gimmick and then frame every shot of the bordens without showing their hands unbelievably no one tricked us with memento he tricked oh, yeah. us with Memento. We thought he was going to be smart because Memento is a legitimately good script. Here's, I mean, Memento's one of those Memento's one of those movies that has surprise endings it doesn't even call back to. Like, for instance, Leonard in Memento does not have the disease. Mm-hmm. It, remember how he claimed that Sammy Jenkins wasn't faking it? He just clinically didn't have the disease? Well, neither did Leonard because the fact that Leonard remembers Sammy Jenkins' story and Sammy Jenkins' story is actually his own story distorted after the accident means he didn't have the disease. And never once in the movie do they say that. Yeah. And that's why Christopher Nolan tricked us all. He made a really dense and layered mystery that doesn't over-explain itself with Memento, and then he and then he just got progressively dumber after that. Yeah. I will give one tip of the hat for him being a creative filmmaker. So I remember you talked about like that existential horror of, you know, when yeah. Angier didn't know who Angier he really was. Actually, in the film, it shows exactly what Angier came out of the machine. Do you know what I'm talking about? I wonder if you picked up on that. No, can you tell me, please, which one is the real Angier? So when An- the very first time it happens, and then he sh- and then one of them shoots the other. Yeah, which one is the real Angier? So here's my theory, and I I, I think it holds well, a lot of water. Technically, they're both the real Angier. Yeah, Angier, when he goes to Colorado to hunt down Tesla, yeah, he has to sign the ledger for the hotel, and there's a deliberate yeah. close up of his left hand signing his name. When he first uses the machine, his clone picks up the gun with the right hand and shoots Angier in the machine. I believe it's a different Angier. No, 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 no. It's the trans it's the transported Angier who gets shot. No. The Angier that's still in the machine. A thousand percent. I don't know. See, now that's how, like, the machine works. No, no. I'll give you exactly why. Angier goes into the machine with a gun. Okay. No, no, he and doesn't. The gun, Angier... the gun is outside. The gun is where he gets teleported to. It's on a table. It's the Angier oh, in the it? machine 
raises his hands and goes, no, no, no. I no. Think it's the, and, no, it's, it's definitely the Angier gets transported that goes, no, no, and nope. then gets shot. It's Angier that's a machine gets shot. Gets shot. Go back and watch the scene again. It's the Angier so that stays think, in the machine that gets shot. So you think that basically he is killing the original version of himself over and over, that every single transported Angier is eventually killed by the new Angier. No, here's also like another like weird loop about that. So that means that the first Angier that got teleported, I believe is a duplicate, shot the original Angier, but in order right. to keep doing the trick, the new Angier had to willingly walk inside that cage knowing that when the trick goes off, he's going to be thrown into a tank of water and killed. Yeah, he had to commit saying. suicide every time. Yeah. That's what I mean. Every Angier is a new Angier who only has a very limited time on Earth because he will eventually be in the trick and die. I think it makes a nice closed loop because, okay, yeah. so say he didn't put... I hope you're right, by the way. Well, if he didn't put the... Let's put on our thinking caps. If Angier yeah. didn't leave the gun out there and when he got teleported, there were two Angiers, what do you think that does? Like, how do you think you can solve that problem as, like... A storyteller be like look but why does the new angier shoot the old angier see this is the only flaw is i think you're remembering the scene wrong no I because i focused transported angier because angier i who gets, honed who in gets so hard on the fact that the original angier was left-handed there's a close-up of his hand there's no reason why a director puts in that shot and then later on the other angier picks it up with his right hand implying that like when you get teleported, you're, it's like you're a, a mirror reflection of yourself. Instead of being left-handed, you're right-handed. But the point of leaving the gun out there was to not leave this sloppy situation where you've got to, like, every time Angier gets cloned, what do you do? Give him, like, a boat ticket to America and 50 bucks and be like, see you later. I think it's just a cleaner way of telling the story that, that one and. <laughs> One Angier enters, two Angiers exit, one has to die. Like, you know, it's funny. I was trying to look it up on YouTube, and then the second I did, first I looked it up on Netflix. It's not on there anymore. And then I tried to go into YouTube, and it like muted your your mic to me. So I was like, damn, like I can't I can't discover this. So look, guys, one way to know for Sean and I to know is if we have listeners is if you have an answer to this, please comment on our iTunes. Uh, page what the answer is like you don't have to be like we like our po- this podcast you can be like this podcast sucks but just leave the answer like please let us well, give know us your which theories. one it is i don't believe there's an answer to this yeah. problem sam i think it's just no, like i, a, I, agree with you. I Look, think it's just nolan throwing in something clever that the other engineer is like a, a mirror clone and it neatly yeah. solves the problem that i mean in the book the book doesn't have the problem only one live angier copy comes out each time you just have to hide the prestige. In the movie, right, right. having two Angiers, that creates a whole new set of problems. And so I think Nolan's like, okay, well, how about I give one of them a gun and it's the mirror Angier. But then it doesn't make well, sense. Well, he did that deliberately. He, he wanted to create a problem. So yeah, look, well, you asked look, me for a compliment about the movie. I have one compliment. Uh, Christian Bale's a good actor. That's my compliment. Yeah. That's it. That's my one compliment. He's a good actor. Um, outside of that, I have no compliments for this movie. No, the it's only so thing contrived. Maybe I should give. So maybe contrived. I can only, I can only give the movie a pass. Maybe on one thing, Sean. Mm-hmm. Can he make this movie as a faithful adaptation to the book? Is it possible? Possibly. I be, I mean, it would it would did definitely he, extend. Did he the do movie. what he did? Did he do what he did out of necessity? I believe so. 
I believe he had to because all the choices that are in the movie shows that I believe he must have had like a script that was like 60 pages longer and he just couldn't get it yeah. couldn't get it made. They're like you have to get rid of all this. Look, like any executive I think was like, "Oh, yeah. keep the main story of the magicians and then, you know, Hollywood it up, dumb it down a little bit." And we'll slap your name on it. I think he could have made the exact same changes to the book that he made in this movie and still made a better movie. Like, I think a lot of it was just poor filmmaking. And I think even with the changes he made, he could have made a much better movie um, if he had just made a better movie, even with the even with the plot changes that he made. He's just he's just such an asshole. He can't help himself. He can't he can't help himself to just like. Like, oh, wouldn't this be neat? Well, like, here's the like, thing. You know my... Here's the thing that really... Dude, look at the Fallon character. I know, if I, I know. see that guy Fallon in the street, I'm being like, yo, that guy's wearing makeup and a wig. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know. Like, That's not a real person. Here's just one thing that actually just threw a wrench in my whole feeling about this. Christopher Priest, the, the guy that wrote the book, collaborated with Nolan's brother to write the screenplay. He approved this. I don't think... Yeah, he just wanted the money. I, yeah, he just wanted money, dude. So here's here's Trust me. some of my like minor nitpicks about the movie that I think were worth mentioning. So the casting in this, you already said Jackman's like a terrible actor and uh, Bale's a great actor. But here's the funniest thing. Jackman in the movie, he plays Angier. He is an American. Angier is an American that somehow is also an English Lord Crowley, which is true in the book. But in the book, Angier is naturally a British nobility. So here you have an Australian playing an American who is actually British. You have Christian Bale who is British doing his best Cockney accent. That's fine. And then you have Scarlett Johansson who I don't know what accent she's trying to do, but she's slipping in and out of it very hard, which makes no sense. She's trying to be English. But it makes no sense because in the book, that character is actually American. Angier goes and falls in love with her while he's an American. She could have just been using an American accent. I don't know if she caught that like verbal tick that I get. Like if I watch, um, oh God, uh, any, what is that English director? Uh, Snatch, that movie Snatch. If I watch Snatch. Guy Ritchie. Yeah, if I watch any Guy Ritchie movie, I'm talking in an English accent unbeknownst (laughs) to me. For the next hour. Like, I can't help it. So when, because Johansson was around all these English actors that she just kept slipping into it by accident, blows my mind. Unbelievable. Look, look, <laughs> final thoughts. Uh, prestige book, great. Prestige movie, not great. Illusionist movie, very good. Watch Illusionist. Those are my final thoughts for this podcast. Sean, do you have any? Um, I'll also say the book is great. The movie is very shiny, very satisfying. If you never read the book, you can continue living in that world. But that movie, the closer you look at it, even just on the movie's merits, you're just slowly going to just be disgusted with how just brain dead. It's it's not a good rewatch. Don't rewatch that movie if you like it. Unless you like let it let it. Unless you like the spectacle, it it looks pretty. And look, even if you like it, watch Illusionist. Yeah. Even if you like it, watch Illusionist. You won't be disappointed. Yeah. Uh, Sean, any final thoughts before we head out? We're at an hour now. It's a good, it's a good, good mark to end a podcast. Um, no. Do we want to give away the spoiler for my literary choice next week? Yeah, man, do it. All right. So for my book that I chose that I don't think can be adapted is going to be Paul Auster's New York Trilogy. It's really interesting, Sam. I think you'll like it. It's three separate stories, 
that may mm -hmm. or may not intertwine. And I think we're going to have a good time trying to figure that out. Here's what we have to do, dude. We have to start keeping a tally from here on out about which books you choose that eventually get adapted into movies. Okay, fair enough. I don't think I'm going right, to be man, right. This was fun. <laughs> we'll see. Maybe I'm saying maybe we'll see what happens. Anyway, Sean, this was a good one. Uh, everybody, thanks for listening. Rate and review on iTunes. Sean, until next time. All right. Later. Uh,